Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10 if you have not. Uh, And this fall, we've been making our way through 1 Corinthians 8 through 11. And at the end here, towards the end here of chapter 10, uh, the Apostle Paul is starting to wind down this argument that started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 8. And so just as a way to recap where we've been so far, uh, the main uh, issue in focus has been Paul addressing the Corinthians eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so what they would do is they would go uh, as as sort of a a social outing, go to these uh, temples to false gods where meat was sacrificed to idols. So it wasn't a worship service, but they were going to these temples, eating meat sacrificed to idols as a way to, to be social and to hang out. And some of the Corinthians were saying, hey, this is fine. Look, we understand we have freedom in Christ, that the meat sacrificed to idols, it's just meat. There's no uh, bad juju in that meat. It is just meat, and I can receive that with thanksgiving and eat it. And we know that the idols are not anything as well, that they're, they're false gods. There's no power in them. And so put those two things together. We have freedom in Christ to eat this food. And Paul says in eight, chapter, chapter 8, he's like, yeah, you're right. Theologically, you're right, that there is no bad juju in the meat, and that idol is nothing. And so you do have freedom in Christ to eat that meat. However, there are bigger considerations than just your freedom in Christ. The consideration of watching out for your brother and sister and those that if if you influence them and in influencing them they sin, you're on the hook for that. As well as laying down rights and, and sacrificing for others in order that they may be built up in Christ and know Christ. And so Paul says, yeah, you have freedom in Christ, but there's something bigger that we live for, something more important. And so that was largely his approach in chapters 8 and 9, pointing them past the freedom to something greater. Here in chapter 10, he's going to do something a little bit different. He's actually sort of flipping this around on those who, who would claim freedom in Christ. And as we saw last week, he's bringing a particular warning. And here he's kind of carrying that argument forward in some ways. And he's saying this, yes, freedom in Christ, but understand that there are times where that exercising of freedom in Christ is so caught up in other sinful actions and attitudes that there is no way for you to exercise that freedom without falling into sin. He's going to point to them and say, hey, yes, you have freedom in Christ to eat that meat, but you going to those temples actually is leading you into idolatry. Why? How is that happening? Well, as Paul says in these verses, by you going to those temples and eating that meat, you find yourself in the position of actually fellowshipping with demons. I think we would all agree that there are few things more enjoyable than sitting down and having a meal with close friends or family. A good food, a good company, there's something just powerful about that, beautiful about that, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas or Easter, whether it's just having somebody over in your home just to sit down and break bread together. Uh, there's something beautiful about that exchange. Why? Because in that eating together, in that spending time together, we're, we're doing something more than just hanging out. We're, there's this word that Christians love to use, fellowship. We're fellowshipping. What is that? That's, that's opening up our hearts and our lives to people that they may enter in, they may come close, and we may enter in and get close to them as well. And there's something about eating a meal together that sort of loosens the gears a bit, loosens us up, opens us up to one another. It it creates this context where deeper relationship 
can be created. God has just hardwired in eating meals together this really powerful relational dynamic. And so eating together, we recognize, is this incredible opportunity to go deeper with people. And we, we recognize, hey, eating with people is one of the best ways that you can get to know somebody and become better friends. I mean, just do an experiment. Invite somebody over several times a month just to have dinner with each other and do that consistently, and I guarantee you're going to become closer. You're going to be deeperly, more deeply connected to one another. There's something powerful about eating meals together. I remember uh, several years ago, there was this clip of a, of a college basketball player, and it was his last game, and he was being interviewed, and a reporter asked him, hey, what are you going to most miss about your time playing basketball for this university? And, and through tears, as this kid is just choking back emotion, this is what he says, going out to dinner. I mean, this was a high-level Division I athlete, had played in significant games, significant competition. The thing he was most remembering and you can take away is, I went out to dinner with my friends. Like, we, were, we became friends, more than just teammates, because we went out to dinner together. That was the highlight of his basketball career. Hey, this is also why awkward dinners are hard. <laughs> If you've ever had those awkward dinners, because the relational dynamic in a meal, there's just something extra potent and powerful about it. Like you can have an awkward conversation with somebody just kind of standing around, and it's like, yeah, that was awkward, but not too bad. But if it's a meal together, it feels like the stakes are higher. <laughs> the awkwardness is intensified. Why? Because the relational power that is being opened up there is intensified as well. Your fellowshipping, an awkward fellowship is really hard. This is why we also recognize that when we dine with those that we shouldn't be dining with, that there is a particular sense of betrayal that is felt. A business partner dining with his partner's competition. It's more than just having a meeting. There's something personal and intimate about that that, that signals a betrayal. A husband or wife dining with his family, but then going and dining with another woman but we don't go, oh, that was just a meal together. What's the big deal? We were just eating together. No, we recognize there's something personal about that, intimate. And to dine with those we shouldn't be dining with signals a sense of deep betrayal and hurt. And this is what Paul is getting underneath. This is the dynamic, this is the, the metaphor, the idea that, that Paul is pushing forward to the Corinthians to draw their attention to what is happening. That in their exercise of freedom, they're actually entering into fellowship with the, what, what is evil, what is sinful, what is demonic even. They're entering into this, this space where they're being shaped by powers and forces that should only be reserved for God. And when we allow something that close, when we give our hearts to something that only should be reserved for God, we have fallen into idolatry. The title of my message this morning is Don't Dine with Devils. Don't Dine with Devils. Paul is warning the Corinthians to flee idolatry. He's warning them against allowing anything that close to their heart that only should be reserved for God. And it's the same warning God's word gives us this morning. And so here is the main point for us from this passage. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. And we're going to look at a particular truth that, that Paul is going to emphasize to make his point, and it's that we sit at Christ's table 
And as we sit at Christ's table, here's what happens. We commune with Christ. We sit in solidarity with others. And third, we declare our loyalty. And because these three things are true, there's going to be particular implications for us. And so I want to look at these three points and then look at what this means for us as followers of Jesus. So Paul sets up his argument with a posture of reasonableness. This is what he writes in verse 15. I'm speaking as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I am saying. Saying, hey, look, I'm going to make an argument here. You're reasonable people, at least you believe yourselves to be. Judge if what I'm saying is right. If, if, if the premise I'm going to give you is true, does it not follow that my argument is true? If, if the thing that I'm setting before you is true, then you can't help but say, yeah, you're right, Paul. It's like making the argument that Batman is better than Iron Man. Like, I've had this argument with some people in the church, and I'm like, I need to excommunicate you fools for thinking Iron Man is better. Like, I had this conversation with Jake White all the time. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of my best friends in the church, and, but I'm just like, man, this is one area we don't have fellowship in. But if, if, if I'm telling you, hey, here's the reasons why. Because if Bruce Wayne and Tony Stark step out of their costumes and their suits, Bruce Wayne is going to beat Tony Stark down. Like, he's just tougher than him. If that's true, does it not follow that Batman is better than Iron Man? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you get the gist. If this is true, then this thing has to be true. And so here's where Paul goes with this argument. He puts forward this premise that followers of Jesus sit at Christ's table, and as the table you sit at determines where your heart's at, we sit at Christ's table and we are communing with him. This is the first point that he drives home. We're communing with Christ. This is what he writes in verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Corinthians, First City Church, is it not true that we are at Christ's table and when we exercise that in the Lord's Supper, when we come together and take the Lord's Supper, is it not true that we are sharing in the blood and the body of Christ. Now, what does this mean, sharing in? Well, the word sharing, and some translations have this participating in, it's the Greek word koinonia, which where we get the word fellowship from. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, is it not true that we are actually fellowshipping, communing with Christ? Like in that meal, as we eat and as we drink, we are opening up ourselves to Christ to receive his grace and his love and his power. His spirit is ministering to us. We're, we're having a moment with Jesus. We're actually relating to him, communing with him. We're, we're, there, there's relationship that is going on. Just as we sit and have a meal with a good friend or family member, we're sitting with Jesus. We're fellowshipping with him. Is this not true? Now, this language of sharing in the body and blood of Christ or eating the body and blood of Christ, this is very vivid, visceral language. And it's language Jesus himself used. In John chapter 6, verses 53 through 57, Jesus actually shocks people with his language. He tells them this, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. 
The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as a living father sent me and I live because of the father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. To eat the flesh and drink the blood of Jesus. It's not literal. Jesus isn't saying cannibalize him. But he's using very vivid language to show you just how intimate, just how needed, just how intense this is. To, to have faith in Jesus as is, is as if you were actually eating Christ, consuming Christ. His life was getting into you. Just like when you eat food and the nutrients go into your bloodstream. The life of Christ as we receive him and trust in him by faith gets into our system. And we feed on him, his life in ours, our life in him. This is no small thing. This isn't just a mental acknowledgement of Jesus. No, it's actually consuming and feeding on Christ spiritually. Now, how do we do this? Well, there's multiple ways that we feed on Christ. Worship. That's why gathering every Sunday matters. We're feeding on Christ, his life being worked in us, where our hearts are being transformed by him. We feed on Christ in prayer, where we commune with him and we spend time with him. We feed on Christ in his word. Christ is the word made flesh. Everything in the Bible points to Jesus and encourages us in Jesus. And so we feed on Christ in his word as we put our faith in him in our daily lives, when we trust him and choose to follow and be obedient to him rather than sin. That's feeding on Christ and his life being built up in us. And in probably the most um, the, the way that this parallels this the most literally in some ways, we feed on Christ in the Lord's Supper. Now, here's something we need to recognize, and this may sound new to you. Some of you, this, this, you, you've had this perspective for a long time, but some of you, this might be new. I want you to understand something very important about the Lord's Supper. We don't believe that we are literally eating the body and blood of Christ. That's, we're, we're good Protestants here. However, this is not just an intellectual exercise. This, this is not just us, oh, I'm remembering sort of just having this mental moment. Yeah, Jesus died for me in the past. I'm just sort of reflecting on that. This isn't an intellectual exercise. It is a spiritual experience. That's why we do it every Sunday. <laughs> when we come forward and participate in the Lord's Supper, we are actually communing. Christ is present by his spirit in the bread and in the cup, and we're communing with him. We're being built up in him. The, the life that is in Christ, is being, we're being strengthened in that. We're not getting something that we don't have, but we are being strengthened in what we do have in Christ. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a few weeks. But I want you to recognize, when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are experiencing something spiritual and profound in Christ's presence. We're experiencing something that is transforming us and strengthening us in his grace and his love. We're communing with him. We're communing with him. And here's what's beautiful about this, friends. Here's what's so beautiful about this. When Mindy and I have people over, there, there's always this great moment that I love when it's like, hey, we want you to come over and have dinner with us, and they'll ask, hey, can we bring anything? And I'll say, just bring yourselves. It, it, it's fun to be able to say, hey, we just want to bless you all of our resources, you come and partake of those things. This is what Jesus does to us. When Jesus invites us to the table, our, our reaction is to say, what, what can I bring? What do I need to do? How do I need to get myself cleaned up? What do I have to perform? How do I get myself worthy of coming to the table? What does Jesus say? Just bring yourself. <laughs> bring all of your sin, all of your brokenness, 
all of your fear, all of your doubt, all of your mess, all of that darkness, just bring it because all of my resources, all that I am, my body and my blood are sufficient for you. They're sufficient for your salvation and your grace and your freedom, sufficient for your life to completely and utterly transform you, to one day raise you up and set you free from a body full of brokenness. We come and Jesus invites us. We fellowship with him and we just bring ourselves. We're communing with Christ. We sit at the table of Christ. There's another element of this that's important to recognize. Sharing in the body and blood of Christ, sharing in his life means we're also, it's not just communing with him, but we're also sharing in the kind of life that Christ has. Well, what, what do the cup and the bread point us to? Well, the cup points us to the blood of Christ shed for us. The bread signifies Christ's body given for us, sacrifice, humility. When we come to this table, when we sit at the table of Christ, when we fellowship with him, our life begins to reflect his life, humility and sacrifice. There's, there's no place to stand on rights and privileges at the table of Christ. What rights and privileges do we have? None of us belong at that table. We're invited because of grace. We're invited because Christ is humble and he sacrificed and he laid down his life for us and that is the life that we now take upon ourselves. Sharing in the life of Christ means we share in his kind of life, humility and sacrifice. And so sitting at the table of Christ is the we, we commune with Christ. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. And we sit at a table with Christ, and that is a table of humility and sacrifice. Here's the second point. We sit at the table of Christ, and we sit in solidarity with others. It makes sense that this is a table of humility and sacrifice because that seat at, the, at Christ's table is not just a table for two. It's not just you and Jesus. You're at that table with everybody else who is in Christ. You're at that table in particular with everybody who is a part of First City Church, if you are a part of First City Church. We're at this table with other people. We sit in solidarity with others. Here's what Paul writes in verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. We are united in Christ. We're united at this table, but it's not just, Paul's not just going, hey, we're one in Christ, to be united in Christ and to sit at Christ's table means we're in solidarity, meaning I identify with this body. I am laying down and I'm laying down my rights. I'm humble and I'm sacrificing for their good. That I sit at this table in solidarity with them and I want them to, I want them to know Christ and be built up in Christ. I give my life to them. I'm not dividing. I'm not fighting for my rights and fighting for my status and fighting for position. No, I'm loving and I'm serving because I'm in solidarity with my brothers and sisters. I sit at the table of Christ with others. And this is the beauty of coming to the table again, week after week after week. We're reminded that we sit at the table of Christ with other people. And as we come and we partake of the bread and the cup, we're reminded this is a life of sacrifice and service that the life of Christ in me is calling me to that life. And I look around the room and I see, here are the people I'm called to love and to sacrifice and serve. Here are the people that I'm in solidarity with. I'm for them. And then I get to look around the room and I go, there's people for me. There's people here that I may grow in Christ and be built up in Christ and they're giving their lives to me. And so together we sit at the table of Christ in solidarity with one another. The table you sit at 
is where your heart's at, and we sit at the table of Christ, and our hearts are shaped in this sense of solidarity. Third, sitting at the table of Christ, we declare our loyalty. Sitting at his table, sharing in his body and his blood with others, this signals our loyalty to Christ alone. Here's what Paul writes in verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? So Paul's kind of pointing back to the past again. He's pulling on Israel's history, and he said there was a time when Israel, under their law, they would come and they would make sacrifices. And part of that sacrifice is you would actually eat part of that sacrifice. But what was happening? One, they were communing with God, but they were also signaling their loyalty because in the ancient world, the God you sacrificed to was the God you declared, I am loyal to this God. This is the God who I follow, the God who is my king, the God who has my loyalty. And so for Israel to eat and participate at the altar of Yahweh was to say, he is my Lord, he is my God, and there is none other. And so Paul points back to Israel's loyalty and the loyalty signaled in that meal to point us, hey, when we sit at the table of Christ, which is expressed as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're declaring, Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Lord and none other. No other God, no other Lord, no other servant, none that, that shapes my heart and has loyalty over my heart, but Christ. We declare our loyalty as we sit at this table. Friends, it's important to recognize that when we put our faith in Christ, when Christ calls us to himself, he's calling us to himself exclusively. I am your Lord, I am your Savior, I'm your master, follow me. And we are called to that loyalty. As we talked about last week, grace doesn't let us off the hook. Grace actually puts us on the hook, but in a good way. <laughs> because now we've been set free and we're forgiven to follow the one true Lord and Master. The one that is gracious and loving and kind. The one that is worthy of all majesty and honor and glory. The one in whom we find true life but we are called to be obedient. We are called to be loyal. We sit at Christ's table and that declares our loyalty. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. So to sit at the table of Christ means their hearts are being shaped in loyalty to him alone. So this is the argument that Paul is making. This is the premise. Corinthians, First City Church, is it not true that we sit at Christ's table that, that we're communing and fellowshipping with him, that we're communing and fellowshipping with one another, we're sitting at this table together, and that by sitting at that table, we're declaring our loyalty. If all of that is true, does it not follow then that we should do nothing to violate that? That there should be nothing that would break our communion with Christ, that there should be nothing that would violate our solidarity with our brothers and sisters, and nothing that would rub against our loyalty to Christ. Is it not true then we would not want to exercise our freedom in any way that would do violence to those things? Make sense? <laughs> Make sense. And so Paul goes deeper here by clarifying something in verse 20, verses 19 and 20. He, 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 again, reaffirms this concept of freedom in Christ. He, he says, what am I saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. He, he's, he's going, hey, look, I'm not contradicting myself when what I said back in chapter 8. I mean, it wasn't really a chapter back then, but earlier in the letter, 
I'm not contradicting myself. I still uphold, yes, there's freedom in Christ. Not saying that. However, however, I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share the Lord's table and the table of demons. Look, there's freedom on paper to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Theologically, yes, there's freedom there. However, the way the Corinthians were exercising this was leading them into idolatry. For them to go to these temples of these false gods and eat the meat sacrificed to idols and to socialize the way they were socializing led them into idolatry. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on at all these parties and get-togethers that would cause Paul to say, hey, there's no way you can escape idolatry by going to these things. But we don't need to know because we recognize the principle. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. And for these Corinthians to go and participate and exercise their freedom in this way meant that they were actually entering into spaces where they were communing with demons. It doesn't mean that the idol was anything. It doesn't, it doesn't, Paul wasn't saying that this idol is now a god or that this meat actually has bad juju in it. He's like, no, but something was going on there where they were opening up their hearts, opening up their lives, being influenced by demonic forces. They were fellowshipping with demons in a way that that's only reserved for the Lord. And what was the result of that? What was the fruit of that? Well, what, what are the problems in the Corinthian church? What did we see? Disregard for godliness, pride, selfishness, disregard for others, justification of sin, disloyalty to Christ. Sounds awfully demonic. Like, we don't have to think of like the sort of like exorcist movies to think demonic. Anything that is anti-Christ is demonic. And they were fellowshipping with forces, fellowshipping with influences that were causing them to break communion with Christ, disregard that solidarity they had with others, and ultimately be disloyal to Christ, very much in conflict with Christ's table. Now look, friends, here's where it gets real for us. We're not going to temples of false god and eating meat to sacrifice to idols. He said, I don't think there's any place you can do that in Omaha or Bellevue. However, there are plenty of tables that call to us. There are plenty of tables that invite us to come and sit down there at that table, which will cause us to break communion with God, to, to break solidarity with our brothers and sisters, and, act, and end up being disloyal to Christ. There are plenty of tables that want our allegiance, that want our fellowship, that want our hearts at the expense of our hearts belonging to Christ. Plenty of them. And here's what's tricky and hard about all of this. A lot of them, they're not sinful in and of themselves. They're not. You have freedom in Christ to do that. But there are ways that these things can become attached to sinful activities and attitudes that there is no way but to fall into idolatry. Look, some devils are obvious, and some devils are less obvious. And in our culture, they tend to be a little less obvious in a lot of ways. And so at the risk of getting some emails this week, let me press on two areas. Let me press on us, which I think in our community, our context, our particular subtle ways, where there are tables that are inviting us to sit down at them, and it's costing us Communion with the Lord, solidarity with one another, and ultimately loyal to Christ. Here's the first one. 
politics. Look, church, we should be politically engaged. I'm not telling you to retreat from the world. We should care about our society being built up in justice and goodness and fairness. We should care about these things. We should be politically engaged. I'm not negating that. However, can you engage politically without getting angry? Is it possible for you to engage with people politically, people you disagree with, and set aside those differences in a moment so you can love them, serve them, sacrifice for them, and, and, and even in the midst of them saying things politically you disagree with, the only thing you can think about is, I want you to know Jesus. <laughs> or if they know Jesus, I want you to be built up in Christ. And, and I say that with humility. I'm not guaranteeing that you're right. You could be wrong. That's beside the points. But is your heart burning with a desire for that person to know Christ, irregardless of their political stance? Does that become secondary to your concern and your love for them? Friends, can you engage in politics and when things don't go your way, you don't fall into despair? Can you engage in politics in such a way where your hope is not in a political outcome or political party, political candidates, but in the kingdom of God? Are you more concerned about the Constitution being violated or the Word of God being violated? Those two things aren't always the same. Is your hope in the Constitution being upheld or in the resurrected Christ? <laughs> Friends, we have to be honest about this. Politics is the civil religion of our country. Here's another question for you. Do you condemn those who are on the other side of the aisle? Like, do you call down judgment on them? Are you sure that they are headed for judgment in hell because of their political beliefs? That sounds awfully religious. Is salvation in becoming this political party and following this particular candidate? Sounds awfully religious. Friends, if that's what your heart is, that's idolatry. It's idolatry. You have pulled up a seat to the table of politics you're fellowshipping with the angry and the compromising and the ones who glorify political kingdoms and power over the kingdom of God and submitting to a crucified and resurrected king. You're finding solidarity with those people rather than solidarity with the blood-bought saints of God. Friends, this is what happens when we sit at the table of politics rather than sitting at the table of Christ. What most has our heart, what most has our joy, what most has our hope the solidarity that we find, the loyalty, it's all in political and earthly kingdom rather than Christ, his church, and the kingdom of God. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. Here's the second one, and this one may get me even more emails, but as your pastor, I'm burdened for this. Family activities. Friends, I want your family to thrive. I want you to enjoy life. Get out and live your life. Participate in all that this world has, all the good things, all the good gifts, all the good activities. I'm not saying just sit home and do nothing. I'm not saying just sit home and read and pray your Bible and that's, that's the only way you can be loyal to Jesus. I'm not saying that whatsoever. But here's what we have to come to grips with, each and every one of us, because this is an idol of our culture and our community here in Bellevue, Nebraska that family activities 
are the table we sit at rather than the table of Christ. Here's what I mean. You ask yourself this question, is your family self-oriented or Christ-oriented? What's determining your calendar? What's determining your priorities? What do you most want out of life as a family? Parents, what is the thing you most want for your kids? What is the one thing that you tell yourself, if they don't have this, then I'm going I'm to be concerned as a parent? What, what are the things that you make space for as you are raising your kids and teaching them what it means to follow Christ? Are they, is that getting confused with all the other activities that they're involved in? When you have to sacrifice, what gets sacrificed? Is it easy to chuck Christian community? Friends, I know, again, can walk right up to that line of like, boy, he sounded legalistic right now. Like, he can't tell me that I can't go have my kids be in travel soccer. No, I'm not saying that. But look, you're sitting at some table. You're sitting at a table. And, and there are things that are influencing your family and your kids and 20 years from now, what do you want most want their heart to be shaped around? 20 years from now, if your kid didn't make a travel soccer team or didn't get into the college that they wanted to or they weren't like awesome in school, but they loved Jesus, would you be okay with that? I'm not saying those two things are mutually exclusive. It's hyperbole for the sake of point, for making a point here. But do you hear me on this? Like we come and we sit at tables of activity. Our hearts are being shaped and the solidarity that's being shaped around this, your kids probably feel more loyal to their school and their sports team than they do to First City Church in some ways. That if they're going dis- to have to sacrifice something and you say, hey, we're going to sacrifice this activity, their heart goes, well, I don't want to do that. But if you said the sacrifice church, they'd be like, all right, I'm cool with that. And it's not just show up on Sunday, show up in gospel community, go do all the church things. This is about, are they being shaped in Christ? Like, that's what we're after here. And the things that call us to Christ and shape us to Christ. No one's taking church attendance. No one's taking gospel community attendance. We're not, you know, we're not this running checklist of whether you're doing all of these things. It's just, what has your heart? What has your calendar? What has your time? What are you shaping your kids in? When they grow up, are they going to be people who love Jesus and want to give their life away to Christ and give their life to see that other people may know Christ, no matter what God calls them to in their life? Or is Jesus an add-on, a nice thing because they're a religious person, they're a conservative person, and that's what I do. I go to church. Oh, what a tragedy. If that's, what our, that's all our kids would be, I go to church because this is just what I do. This is what nice religious conservative people do rather than I go because I sit at the table of Christ and I fellowship with Christ and I'm in solidarity with God's people and I'm loyal to Jesus above everything else and I want people to know Christ and I want to build up the church. That's what we want for all of us. The table you sit at determines where your heart's at. And so friends, oftentimes we're sitting at the table of activities rather than the table of Christ. And here's what, where Paul lands this for us. Verse 22, he, <laughs> he makes this point. When we exalt freedom, when we exalt the gifts of Christ above Christ, what happens? We end up provoking the Lord to jealousy. <laughs> 
God doesn't just sit and look at our divided hearts and go, okay, whatever. No, God responds to that. Just as a spouse has every right to respond to a husband or a wife that is cheating on them, God has every right to respond to us cheating on him. Stark language, but the Apostle Paul is pulling no punches here. This points back to the verses earlier and say, God dealt with this. He lit his people up when he needed to, to bring them back to faithfulness to him. What are, we, what are we thinking is going to be the end of that, our divided hearts? I mean, Paul kind of throws this question in. Do we think we're stronger than God? I believe this is like a humorous, kind of a humorous sort of tongue-in-cheek, ironic, to sort of hit us in the mouth. Do we, do we think we're stronger than God? <laughs> then why are we messing around? Why are we messing around? Well, why, why are we sitting at other tables rather than the table of Christ? We think we can provoke the Lord and get away with it? I sometimes think we do. But don't miss, as, as strong as Paul is punching here on these, in this last verse, as, long as, as strong as he's holding in front, hey, you do not want to be sitting at the table with demons. Do not provoke the Lord to jealousy. What rings clearly and loudly here are the first verses. Is it not true? that we share in the blood and body of Christ? Is it not true that Jesus laid down his life to set us free from our sin and our shame that we might have communion with him? Is it not true that Jesus died for our sins to bring us into relationship with the Father that we might sit at his table? Is it not true that Christ has brought us into relationship with one another, that we together might glorify God and love one another and experience fellowship with one another and build each other up in Christ and declare the gospel to the world? Is that not true? Is it not true that Christ is the resurrected and reigning King, the Lord of glory, the creator of all things? Is it not true that he is worthy of all of our worship? and all of our devotion, and all of our loyalty, is he not the one worth just giving all of our lives to? If these things are true, then why would we ever sit at another table? If these things are true, why would we seek any other communion? Why would we seek any other solidarity? Why would we chase after any other loyalty? Because friends, in communion with Christ is true life, true joy, true peace, in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. Here is true family. And in loyalty to Christ, true obedience. And there is joy in obedience. And so, as we have been looking at the past several weeks, we're confronted with this truth that, yes, we have freedom in Christ, but it's not the ultimate thing. That there are times where we set aside our freedom because we're harming other people. At times we set aside our freedom because we want to enter into spaces so that we can share the gospel and build other people up and we want to sacrifice and love them. But there are also times where we set aside our freedom because we don't want to fall into idolatry. We don't want to sin against our God, our Savior. We don't want to gum up that communion, that sweet communion we have with him. We don't want to jack up the solidarity we have with one another and mess this beautiful unity, this beautiful thing that Christ has accomplished in creating the church. We want to joyfully be a part of it. And we want to stand and declare Christ is king. 
Christ is king. He has my heart. He has my devotion. He has my loyalty because he's worth it. And I want you to know that so that you can experience it too. Friends, we set aside freedom for something greater. That is, that's what Paul's calling the Corinthians to. That's what God's word calls us to. As strong as the warning, as important as the warning, look to what the promise points us to. Look to the life that is in Christ, the communion we have, the solidarity we have, and the joy in following Christ. Amen? Let's pray.